Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot inter- interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Missy, and it's good to be with you all this morning, and uh, Molly, Alex, and Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your testimonies. It's always encouraging to uh, get three sermons before we get the, the other one, so uh, it is uh, encouraging to hear the gospel um, and how it has taken hold in their hearts, and uh, I am trust that it uh, resonates in your heart, as you recall God's grace towards you. Well, as we come to God's Word, the New Testament is replete with exhortations, actually warnings even, for God's people to be on guard against false teaching. We consider maybe even Paul's closing to the book of Romans as he warned the Romans to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He says, avoid them. To the Galatians, he poses this question to them. He says, you were running so well. You were, you were running the marathon of the Christian life. Who hindered you? This persuasion, he says, of the, per, of the false teaching that was plaguing that church, he says, is not from the one who called you. The Colossians are exhorted to see that no one takes them captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Timothy and the church in Ephesus are reminded that the the Holy Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul, Apostle Peter says to the churches that he writes to, 
The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, bringing upon them swift judgment, and many will follow them. Well, this is just a sampling. We could keep going. Uh, Each of those books has more warnings than what we read. In fact, we could go through almost every book in the entire New Testament. And at some point, the the letter or the gospel, even the the Acts, would address false teaching in some form or fashion. Now, why is that? Why is this a recurring warning, a recurring exhortation for the church to stand on guard against false teaching? Well, I think at least two reasons. Number one, as Peter says, there will be false teachers among you. This threat will be ever prevalent throughout every generation of the church. It will always be a threat that is coming to attack us. But it's also, secondly a threat, in reason the, the Scriptures continually warn us, because it creeps in secretly. It's often subtle. It comes in, it creeps in without notice. Heresy doesn't walk through the door and say, hey guys, I'm a heretic. Just want to let you know. If, you want to, if you're interested in me, I'll be in the back waiting for you. Uh, you can be in the lobby and talk to Pastor Chase, but I'll be over by the library. You can talk to me. Uh, pick your, you know, your choosing. It doesn't work like that. It comes in a way that you would not be suspecting. It's without notice. Well, here in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've already read this morning, Jesus likens false teaching to the leaven of bread. He picks up that kind of instance of this secret subtlety, if you will, of how false teaching spreads. And in thinking about yeast in in bread, just take a little bit of yeast and you, you mix it in the dough and it begins to expand. Even if you just have a little teeny bit, right? It begins to leaven the whole loaf. In fact, the Apostle Paul in some other instances, even with the Galatians and the Corinthians, He even borrows this analogy himself, and and you might be familiar with it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So remove the leaven from among you. All but one instance of leaven in the New Testament is negative. All but one instance. And it's a fitting analogy of how false teaching, though it can be very small, can infect the whole body. It's a danger. Even the slightest hint of false teaching can slowly corrupt the human heart and lead you astray. And so to counter this threat, Jesus calls his disciples here in our text to remain nourished on the bread he supplies. So with this in mind, this morning I want us to be on guard. I want us to heed these warnings. Uh, Really, Jesus makes it very clear twice. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I want us to be aware. I want us to be on guard. I want us to consider what is that? How, how How do we stay on guard? What do we do in counter to that? How do we guard against the deceptive leaven of false teaching? which secretly, gets this, destroys faith. It destroys faith. It, it ruins faith. It, it, as Paul says elsewhere, it shipwrecks faith. 
And it prevents you and I from feasting on the living bread of Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so to this end, our passage directs us to do three things. To believe, to remember, and to listen. I want us to believe, I want us to remember, and I want us to listen so that we may be nourished by the bread of Christ. So as we think about believe, what are we to believe? What are we to believe? Well, here in this text, I think we are to believe what Jesus has already revealed. This is what we get out here in these first four verses. Our passage begins with the religious leaders coming... Uh, No doubt, probably from Jerusalem. This is where the other batch had come earlier in chapter 15. They'd come, but they had a specific purpose. They had come to test him. They'd come to test him, asking him, show us a sign from heaven to prove that you are truly who you say you are. If you're from God, show us. Show us a sign from heaven. Now, what's interesting here is the last time Jesus was tested, or said to be tested, do you know where that is? In Matthew chapter 4, when he was in the wilderness with the evil one. And so this is Matthew's way of tipping his hat to, hey, do you remember the last guy who did this? They hang out with him. They have the evil one as their father. And you're seeing that, although none of them would say that. No, we are from God. He says, but watch, they do what he does. They put the Lord to the test. It's also interesting to note here that there is an odd alliance formed between. Notice these religious leaders are identified as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what you need to understand is these two groups were not friends. They were theological and political enemies. And yet, here they are. Who were the Pharisees? Well, simply put, Pharisees was a lay movement. It was a lay movement, kind of, if you want to call it maybe a grassroots movement, where the people had risen up. It was an order uh, uh, from them, and it was meant to be uh, a group who would represent the people to the bureaucratic establishment, which in this case would be Rome ruling through Herod. And really what they were speaking to do, they were trying to be the moral conscience of the nation, calling the political leaders and the people to a strict adherence to the Mosaic law in order to bring about the kingdom of God. If we will get our hearts right, if we will do God's law and we'll go above and beyond, then God's favor will be here. He'll run out the Romans and we will have the kingdom. Well, the Sadducees had a different tack. They were more uh, politically savvy, if you will. They, They weren't trying to call people back to a bygone era. Actually, they were more, all right, here's the situation we're at. How do we navigate our political alliances and make the best of this world? And so they were very much politically connected. If you look in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 8, where he talks about this account, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod kind of interesting. Why do you say Herod? Because the Sadducees and Herod were really tight, if you will. They worked together. Sadducees were politically connected, and they, they sought to make the best of the situation. And so they were progressive, if you will. And they made religious compromises to try to make this work. And, and one of the compromises that they made is they actually only considered the first five books of the Old Testament as Scripture. 
known as the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses. Everything else, uh, we'll, we'll ditch that. That gets us in too much trouble. And so they adhere to that. And some other things, they, they denied the supernatural. You'll find out later, they didn't believe in the resurrection. If you think about Paul, when he stands before the Sanhedrin, one of the ways he kind of gets the heat off of them, he says, I stand before you on behalf of the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like, oh, he's with us. And the Sadducees, oh, no, he's against us, and gets them in a big argument. And so what we have here is an alliance between the ultra-conservatives and the progressives. That's what you got here. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my what? My friend. And it's interesting, though they are both look very different on the surface, what Matthew is tipping off is that they are very much the same in the heart. They are part of an evil and adulterous generation. And you need to beware of them. And what do they do? They come together to put Jesus to the test. He needs to prove who he is. He needs to prove that his claims are legitimate. And they, they ask him to do so by by. Hey, showing us a sign from heaven. Now, you might say, well, didn't he already do this? He already multiplied the the loaves of the 4,000. Isn't that good enough? Well, not exactly. Technically speaking, that was a miracle. But they wanted a sign. What's a sign? Well, a sign might be like Elijah calling fire down from heaven. That's pretty, uh, you know, explicit. Or... Moses, who brought bread down from heaven. Yeah, you multiplied the, the loaves, but that's all down here. Make it come down from heaven. That would be a sign. A sign is showing heaven opens up and heaven comes down. But Jesus says that to demand such a thing, you see that? Reveals their spiritual blindness. He says, verse 4, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Actually, their demand for a sign to prove himself, their testing actually reveals the wickedness of their heart, that they belong to the present evil age, which is passing away. And as he begins to expose this, he, he uses the analogy of weather. And this is probably proverbial in some sense, but as a way of saying kind of like, yeah, you can de- detect the weather, but you can't see what's right before your eyes. You're demanding a sign from heaven, yet what you don't realize is that the sign is right in front of you. You're looking at it. You cannot discern, he says, the signs of the times. Now, we sometimes hear that, the signs of the times, and we think end times, like second coming. This is actually the only place that this phrase, the signs of the time, actually shows up in Scripture, and it doesn't refer to the end times. It's talking about the times that they're living in right then and there, such as when Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They can read the signs of the weather. They can get up in the evening, and they can kind of see, okay, the clouds are are, are, are clear. We have clear skies. We can see the, the sun going down and that red tint over the sky. Looks like we got clear skies. But then tomorrow morning, yeah, it's red, but you can see the horizon and the clouds are building. Must be a storm coming. They're more perceptive looking up into having their heads in the clouds than realizing what is right before their very eyes. And so Jesus confronts them about that. And he says, The only sign that you're going to receive from me is the sign of Jonah. 
which is just so ambiguous, isn't it? If you're sitting there like, what does Jonah have to do with anything? What are you talking about here? What on earth does he mean? Well, he's actually said this before. He said this in Matthew chapter 12. You can go there on your own time. But there, the the Pharisees were asking for a sign. The religious leaders, he said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. But there he explains it. And I bet he did here, but Matthew assumes that we know what that means now. He doesn't have to explain it to us. Well, what does he mean? Well, he says, well, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. He's saying there is a sign that's going to correspond to what was in the Old Testament that is going to happen, and that will be the only thing that will be done for you. And so what he says here in doing that is actually, he's, he's reiterating that the Old Testament, the revelation already given, speaks of me. Listen to it. Often I think we can slip into this error, hopefully not in the full effect that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were to test Jesus, but we need to be weary or aware of the fact that when we demand more than what God has already given us to reveal himself, that we are guilty of putting him to the test. So oftentimes, have you ever said, oh, if you would just give me a sign, then I would know I could trust you. Oh, if you could just give me something else and, and help me discern, maybe it's just something as innocent. Should I take this job or that job? It's okay to pray. Lord, give me wisdom. But, but when we start going to some superstition, trying to look elsewhere to find, Lord, speak to me, because what you've given me, I don't find sufficient. You're doing the same thing. That, that sin is creeping into your heart. And yet Jesus reminds us that to demand more than what he's already revealed is actually characteristic of the evil one. We don't want to be doing that. We don't need more signs. In fact, we have the Old Testament, and not only the Old Testament, but now we have the Old Testament revealed as, as, as Jesus has come and he has revealed himself. And we have it written down in the Gospels, which then explain and connect the dots for us. We can see, oh yeah, I understand what the son of Jonah is. I can see the correlation, and we can trust that he is who he says he is. Now, do you remember the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? I want us to turn there, because I think this this parable actually teaches the same thing that Jesus is doing here, but helps us maybe see it from um, a different perspective, and, and I hope this will be helpful. But go over to Luke chapter 16. And as you're turning there, the the rich man and Lazarus is a story about two men who have died. One is a rich man. We don't have his name, but we have Lazarus, who who is a poor man. They both die. And Lazarus, who is righteous, he goes to be where Abraham is. It's called Abraham's bosom. He's at his side. But the rich man goes to the place of torment, and he's in a place we would associate with hell and and the fire. There's a, a bantering going back and forth, and And in this story, the rich man cries out to Abraham and says, send Lazarus back to my house and warn my brothers. I have five brothers. Warn them so that they don't fall in the same place of torment that I'm at. 
And if you look there in verse, um, verse 29, look at what Abraham says to him. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have what they need. Well, the rich man goes on. He says, no, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, you don't get it. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If we could have this miracle, it doesn't even have to be me. Just send righteous Lazarus, raise him from the dead. They'll realize, and they won't end up where I am. Verse 31. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Sometimes we're tempted to believe if we could just see these things, then my faith would be strengthened. We're like Thomas, right? I won't believe until I can put my finger in his hand or in his side. And what Jesus is telling us is that his revelation, the scriptures, at this point, it's the Old Testament, is enough. If you do not believe them, you won't believe anything else that he gives you. But I think for us, many of us just think it's, it's words on a page. It's dead. It's not living and active. Do you understand that when you read the scriptures, they are actually reading you? That when you approach them by faith, that opens up your eyes. What are the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Sadducees doing? They aren't approaching Jesus by faith. And so they're blinded. They've approached him with a heart to test. Well, you'll never see anything. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So at the end of our passage, verse 4, so he left them and departed. No conversation, no more revelation. The sign's right in front of you. You don't believe, sorry, bye. And he walks on. We need to believe what Jesus has already revealed and that's the first way we guard ourselves from false teaching. But we must also remember what Jesus has done. So after this encounter, as Jesus has left the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we, we see in verse 5 that uh, the disciples and him, they reach the other side. Presumably they've gotten on a boat, they've gone on the Sea of Galilee, and they've gone to another place. But we get this note, they had forgotten to bring any bread and Jesus, after this encounter, after this event, uses his teaching moment. No doubt they were probably there. They heard all that was going on. And they're talking about, oh, we forgot the bread. And, and he decides to use that as an analogy. He says, well, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch and beware of it, he says. But the disciples, they're, they're, they're consumed with other things, aren't they? They, as we see in verse 7, they begin discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Is Jesus calling us out because we forgot the bread? And they're just so consumed, worrying about what has happened. You, you said you were going to get the bread. No, you said you were. Just imagine the seven baskets. Are they just laying there? Are they going to waste? They're just going to get moldy. We, we're hungry. And they are all worried about that. You can kind of imagine the, the scene, if you will. 
The disciples' hearts are anxious. It's as if uh, in Matthew 13 of the, the, the seed that falls upon among the thorns and the thistles, they're getting overwhelmed, choked out by the worries of the world. They're so consumed with that that they don't actually hear what Jesus says. But what does Jesus do? See verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Last time we heard him say that was when Peter is walking on the water. He takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink. The time before that was in Matthew 6. Do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear. Oh, you of little faith. So we can see that this is always wrapped up in taking our eyes off of Jesus. Anxieties begin to fill our heart. The worries of the world begin to consume us. Lead us astray. And he says, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then he begins to recall to them events that are very near. He says, do you not remember when I fed the 5,000? And how many baskets were left over? There are 12, right? And do you remember the time, actually, just where we're leaving, when I read, I fed 4,000? And how many baskets? Seven baskets were left over. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat? Do you not remember who I am? They're worried about the bread, but they, they've seemingly missed the one who multiplies the bread. You've got me in the bunk with you. The bread came from me. And you're worried that you left the bread? You got me. I'm the one who supplied the bread, and you have me with you. So often for us, isn't it true that the next trial, the next worry that comes upon us, we just slip into spiritual amnesia, don't we? We forget. It's as if Jesus has abandoned us, that he has done nothing for us. And we just, we're all tunnel vision, fixed on the worry that is right there, the concern. And we forget. But if we would look back, just begin to think we can begin to see, actually, the Lord has been faithful in other times like this, hasn't he? He's sustained us. He's provided everything that I need. He's even brought us through various trials and temptations. And yet we forget, right? What do we forget? Often we forget he loves us. We begin to question that, don't we? If you really loved me, we start putting them to the test, you would do we begin to question, do you really care for me? Because if you cared for me, you wouldn't let me endure this. Are you able to do anything? Is he even real? We begin to be tempted in all these ways. And part of being on guard against false teaching is actually not losing sight of Christ's faithfulness in the past. That's really how it goes on, right? It's like the dog who chases the squirrel. Yeah, they're, they're good on the path, and then they see something else, and they go after it. Well, when we begin to lose trust in Christ, we begin to not be satisfied in him. Well, guess what? Our eyes, our ears, our appetites begin to linger and begin to look somewhere else, don't they? Part of being on guard here is then looking back at, at God's faithfulness to us in the past. And this is actually what Paul does as he confronts the Galatians who are who are in danger of falling away from the faith. 
uh, I want you to turn again to Galatians chapter 3. And I just want you to see how he kind of attacks this. So if you're in the Gospels, just keep going. You get Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, okay? <clears throat> the Galatians have been plagued by various false teaching. False teachers have come in, and essentially this is what these false teachers are saying. Hey, that's great that you've trusted in Jesus, but now you need to start obeying the law. And the first thing you need to do is you need to get circumcised and then and presumably just keep going through all the, the laws of the Old Testament. That's what it looks like to really be a Christian. And Paul says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's tricked you? he goes on, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's talking about actually the preaching here. I don't think he means that the Galatians were at the cross. He's saying, through the preaching of the gospel, you learn Christ and him crucified. And so he goes on, let me ask you only this. I got one question for you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's he doing? How did you become a Christian? Look back. Was God's love contingent on you doing all these things that are being put upon you? Or was it because you came to him by faith? Because, moving on, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning whatever is being taught here. You started this way. Do you think God's love changed? Remember, it's by faith that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to you. And he dwells in you. And he leads you and he guides you. Do you now think you can do, you need to add? Look back. And remember how God met you. He meets you the same way now. And so we forget what Christ has done through our faith, trusting in him. And when we do that, what do we do? We begin to turn to other things to satisfy our souls. But growing in faith looks like remembering and recounting the mighty works of God. It's as the psalmist declares in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Have you ever done that? That's a good practice. Sometimes we can get in an Eeyore phase. Oh, woe is me. Nothing's going well in my life. Lord has forgotten me. But just get out your little moleskin. Get out a piece of paper and begin just writing. Start with this one. He saved my soul. He redeemed me. He died on the cross. And then you just start listing, recounting the blessings. And guess what? I bet you can't do it. But what do we do? We, we get tunnel vision. We stop listening. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and, and they're just consumed with other things. They don't even hear him correctly. And so remembering here what Jesus has done begins with the cross and resurrection of Christ and how that sign, we've been, we want a sign, well, guess what? He gave us one. He rose from the dead. He took on the, our sin on the cross. And that sign is now worked into our hearts as we have come to him by faith. And it continues actually to play out as he preserves us and he provides for us. 
But Jesus not only called the disciples to remember and perceive, excuse me, he not only called them to remember, but also to perceive, to understand. And how do we see, how do we perceive according to the scripture? We hear by, we see by hearing, always in scripture. So that leads us to our third point, listen to what Jesus has taught. You want to stand on guard against false teaching? Believe, remember, now listen. Listen. So after recounting the recent miracles of multiplying the loaves, Jesus says to them in verse 11, how is it? You, you See, I'm assuming this is sinless frustration. I don't, I don't experience that, but Jesus clearly is a little frustrated with the disciples, but it's, it's, a, it's a righteous frustration, I guess. How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What, what is Jesus doing? He's exposing their little faith. And how is their little faith being manifested? They aren't good listeners. Some of you aren't listening right now. You have no idea what's going on. And so Jesus repeats himself. Says the exact same thing. How did you misunderstood me? And he repeats it. What is it that brings them understanding? We see that in verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the word of Christ that gave understanding. They didn't hear the first time, so Jesus repeats himself. But it's the same words. Oftentimes we have to come back, and that's okay. Come back, come back to God's word time and time and time again, because it is in that way that we will understand. So oftentimes... It's like Charlie Brown's mom, wah, 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 right? You're talking, but I ain't got a clue what you're talking about. Then slow down. By listening to Jesus, the disciples understand the warning and the threat. He speaks the same word to them. And sometimes the reason we struggle in our faith is because we struggle to listen. We're too consumed about other things than to sit and listen. We give our listening ears to many other things, and, and they consume us, the worries that prevail upon us, and we, we fail to guard our souls. And here Jesus warns us from falling Again, into the deception of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and, and we get a, a, an interpretation here at the end of verse 12. They then understood, okay, it's a metaphor. All right. Teaching is what he's talking about. The teaching of the Pharisees. Well, what is their teaching? We're going to get into this later when we get to Matthew chapter 23. But simply put here, the Pharisees' teaching was adding to God's word. The Sadducees' teaching was subtracting from it. Beware of doing that. Beware of those who would do that. Those who would bind your conscience more than the Scripture would, and those who would loosen your conscience more than the Scriptures would. Who like to take things away. Who, who, who make certain points of Scripture Scripture and other points not. 
says, beware of it. It's like leaven, and it will infect you. But this whole conversation with the disciples, by recalling the multiplication of the loaves, he's, he's hinting at us, you need to replace that deception with something else. And Jesus tells us, actually in John's gospel, he kind of brings us, we get a little bit more, the bread, the multiplying of the loaves, what is that teaching us? That's what they do not yet perceive. They think it's just about Jesus doing, hey, he's got a lot of bread in his pocket. You know, I don't know what they think, but they don't understand he's communicating, I'm life. In fact, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never hunger nor thirst. You'll be satisfied. And so Jesus tells us that true life actually comes by feasting on his words. That's what he's getting at. Don't feast on the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teaching, the false teaching. But you need to be nourished on my teaching, the bread that I supply, for it will bring you life, where that will bring you death. He is the bread of life, and whoever comes to him by faith will never hunger. And so Jesus tells the disciples to perceive and understand the significance of the two feedings. That's why he said, have you failed to understand? His teaching, contra the religious leaders, is life and satisfaction for your soul. And so what should we be thinking? Okay, I get eating. You all get hungry? I do. Some of you are like, I'm hungry now. I want to eat. He's saying, he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. Matthew 5. And so feast on his word, he's saying. You want to be on guard against false teaching? Begin feasting here. Begin listening, putting yourself under his word and and letting it be food for your soul. Devour it. Savor it and taste and see that he is good. Because when you're satisfied in him, you find satisfaction in his word, you begin, as the disciples do here, begin to have more understanding and you begin to see that he's faithful and he's true. He does love you. He does care for you. He is able to keep you you'll find that actually you don't want to find satisfaction anywhere else. As the hymn writer goes, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Brothers and sisters, how do you stand on guard against false teaching? You believe, you remember, and you listen to the living word of Christ. There's an old story about a blind French girl who was given a copy of the Gospel of Mark in Braille. And she began reading this Gospel over and over again and actually was converted. It's the only portion of Scripture that she had in Braille, and so it was what she was devouring time and time again. And as the story goes, that she was so consumed with the word that she began to develop calluses all on her hands that she could no longer feel. To remedy this, she began to, she took a knife and began to peel off the calluses. And that helped her out for a little bit, but then there was nerve damage. And she couldn't read anymore. 
in this hopeless condition that she thought she was in, she came back to the friend who had given her this gospel, and as the story goes, she kissed it farewell and gave it to her, but it was in that moment that she realized her lips were more tender than her fingers. And she was able to keep that word. And for the rest of her life, she read the word of God by grazing her lips across the pages. It's my prayer, brothers and sisters, that we would see the word as much to be devoured, much to be loved, much to be consumed, that we would see it as bread from heaven given to us so that we may live and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are the manna from heaven. You are the word of God incarnate. And you have come to seek us and to rescue us and to save us. And you are leading us just like Israel, wandering through the desert. And you are supplying our every need. And Lord, you will bring us to the blessed promised land. You will. And so, Lord, may we come to this text. May we have fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear. To behold wonderful things that you have us from your word. And Lord, I pray that you gave us an appetite today. And Lord, you changed our desires. You changed our spiritual taste buds. That we, we tasted, we got a glimpse and said, yes, your word is good. You are good. I want to see you. I want to know you. And Lord, the things of this world would go strangely dim. And, and we would have no appetite for the leaven of false teaching have no appetite, we would spit it out the moment we taste it, and that you would keep us safe in your word. Lord, that's our prayer, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.